Good morning. If you please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. You can find that on page 592 in the blue Bibles that are located in front of you. If you do not own a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of these home with you. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Thus says God's word. Join me in praying this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth that we have encountered this morning we've encountered it in prayer in song in encouragement fellowship and god now we turn directly to your word god to explore what it tells us of the greatest of all mysteries which is the love of god for his people in christ jesus and so lord we ask that as we consider these things God, that you would do a number of things in us. First of all, God, that you would protect us from an unrighteous spirit of familiarity, thinking that we know everything that can possibly be known about the love of God, when in reality we will be considering and meditating and rejoicing and delighting in the love of God throughout all the ages of eternity. And so, God, awaken us from our slumber and help us to pay attention to what you want to say to us through your word. God, we also pray that as our text tells us this morning, that in our reflection on the love of God for us, we would become agents of the love of God among us, Lord. That we would love those, God, who you want to set your love upon, Lord, and and call those who are even our enemies to repentance out of love for them. So, God, we thank you for this. God, I know that if this is the greatest mystery, God, of all, I am very ill-equipped to righteously and rightfully present it to your people. And so, Lord, I stand before you asking for your help and ask you to just strengthen me that I would be able to uh, do something, God, that that, uh, in surrender to you, Lord, that would bring glory to you and that you would be reflective of your majesty. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I Sometimes I use this time right before I begin the text um, to make announcements or just recognition. And I want to say something that I am woefully behind in saying that uh, I don't know if you guys pay attention to our grounds, but our, uh, our, our flower beds have had just gotten 
just wildly out of control. I mean, there were trees that were not planted by us growing in our flower beds. It was pretty pathetic. And, um, and a couple of ladies, uh, Margie in particular, Ginger in particular, and then, uh, by some freak accident, they roped Leo into this and, uh, and, uh, they got that done several weeks ago. And I, I gotta give credit also to Justin. He, he reminded me of this fact and, um, and, and, uh, you know, said, hey, you really ought to thank those ladies and, and Leo. And I definitely wanted to do that. He told me that several weeks ago, and then I took a two-week break from preaching, so I did not have the opportunity. But I want you guys, when you see them in the hall uh, after service, just to thank them for that. That was something that they just did out of the, out of the goodness of their heart and the, and the time that they had, uh, the, that they contributed to do that. So I didn't want to be remiss by not mentioning that. So thank you for that, ladies and Leo. Um, it's kind of like Charlie's Angels or something around here, but, um, okay, let's get, let's get into the words, shall we? Um, so we are continuing in our ongoing series on the attributes of God. Last week, uh, we, we kind of made a transition. We were talking about elements of the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. And then, uh, Gabriel last week took us through the foreknowledge of God that is kind of connected to that. What the foreknowledge of God does, it, it takes us on a bridge from the wisdom of God across to the love, the goodness, the mercy, the grace of God, which are some of the things we'll be exploring in the next few weeks. So in this this week in our ongoing series on the attributes, we're going to focus on the one attribute that, you know, everyone seems to fixate on. doesn't matter if they are faithful Christians, church attending, or if they are just, you know, somebody out in the world. Everyone loves to talk about the love of God. Culturally, it's become far less, the love of God has become far less of a theological assertion or affirmation as much as it is just a cultural cliche. It's a cliche to speak of the love of God as some kind of universal truth that applies to to every person on earth without any discrimination. But when we speak of the love of God, it's so vital that we distinguish exactly what we mean by that terminology, so as not to lead people astray, or worse yet, to lead ourselves astray. So there are a few things that have to be considered. First, we have to consider what the Bible teaches us that the Lord loves. The Bible's clear on some of those things. So I did the simplest way to do research on this that I possibly could. I went to Bible Gateway, the website, and I just typed in, in in quotes, the Lord loves. Just see what scriptures would, would pull up. And when I did that, I found seven verses in the Bible that basically all seven of them combined tell us two things about the love of God. It tells us that God loves his people. In some verses, it's noted that his people are noted as Israel or the righteous. Sometimes they're noted that way. And this would imply that his, not just Old Testament Israel, but his people in general. God loves his people. Aren't you glad of that fact? But it also tells us that God loves justice. When we flip over to the New Testament, we are told that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, I figured, so that didn't give me a whole lot. What if we 
flipped the script and did a search for what the Lord hates. Because generally, if I know what you hate, I will have a better understanding of what you love, right? So when I did that, I found a few things. First of all, Deuteronomy states that the Lord hates idolatry. And then we come to this fairly lengthy passage, about four verses here in Proverbs 6, you may be familiar with, starting in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. He hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Now, we get a very clear picture there of what God hates, but do you see what I'm saying? By looking at those and kind of looking at the photo negative, you get a pretty good picture of what God loves. In these verses, we can see that God clearly loves biblical worship. If he hates idolatry, what does he love? Biblical worship, as he is prescribed. If he he loves it when that worship honors him, He loves humble eyes, a humble look. He loves a truthful tongue. He loves hands that minister healing and blessing. He loves uh, a heart that devises holy plans. He loves feet that swiftly run to do good. He loves a truthful witness. He loves agents of peace within his household. So we learn a lot about the love of God and what it's like when we understand what God delights in. But this doesn't tell us everything about the love of God. One thing that is very important, uh, or actually two small facts about the love of God you need to know, that his love, the love of God, we always like to talk about, like I said, I've seen the most depraved individuals shouting and screaming, God is love, God loves everybody, we're all God's children, etc., etc. But the love of God never, ever silences or edges out any of his other attributes. Because he's God... All of his attributes exist in full power. We talked about this way at the beginning of the series. In full power at all times. There's never a diminishing of his one attribute so that he might exercise another one. So for example, God never ceases to be perfectly loving even when he pours out his unblemished holiness and his wrath. He never ceases to be loving, and he never ceases to be perfectly loving. He, God never gets so angry that he says, okay, I'm putting my, si- my love aside for a moment, and I'm going to deal with these brats. Never does that. The reason I use the word brats is because if you have been a parent as long as I have, there are times when in the, in the, raw emotion of my sinful nature, I wanted to put aside my love so I could deal with nonsense. Anybody else ever been there? Or I'm the only sinner up here. At least they give the sinner the pulpit, so that's good. That's a good example for you guys. Um, (laughs) um, God never ceases to be perfectly loving. Even when he pours out his holiness and his wrath, he hates and he must judge sin. Why? Why? Because he loves righteousness and he loves 
justice. And so to love all things indiscriminately, both righteousness and sin would be completely out of character. In fact, it would be a philosophical, a logical impossibility. God will not delight in anything that corrupts creation or anything that is uh, offensive to his perfect holiness. And God is also tells us, we said that he loves justice. The Bible tells us that. He's also completely just in all of his ways. Now let's take this to his logical conclusion and perhaps make some of you very, very nervous. When God judges the unrighteous, casting them into hell, that action is rooted in his love and his zeal for his glory, as well as the vindication of his righteous people. When we talk about God casting people into hell, the first thought we think is wrath, judgment, anger, fury. No, it's rooted in his love. Because to ignore unrighteousness would to be to place an unthinkable stain upon his own holiness that would make him not God for you. It would immediately, in the action of ignoring sin, would make him less than God. And what do you need? Do you need half a God, which is no God at all? Or do you need the full potency of God? Can I prove it to you scripturally? Everybody grab your Bibles real quick. I want to show you this. Turn all the way to the back of the book, Revelation, almost the last chapter even, Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to see that God's wrath is rooted in his love. This is what we read in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So here's what's happening. John is having his vision and he sees a worship service unlike anything that we have yet experienced going on in heaven. Who wants to be a part of that worship service someday? Anybody? Okay, let me tell you what they're worshiping for. Keep going. Verse 2. For his, the salvation, glory, and honor belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What you've got to understand is when God judges the wicked, it is a good thing. It is a sign of his love for his people, his love for holiness, his love for his creation, that he will not abide that or tolerate that at all. Y'all are real stingy with the amens this morning. Thank you. Amen to you too. See, God's, this is where we get confused. God's goodness, clearly from the scripture, his goodness, his benevolent kindness is extended to his entire creation. Jesus said the same himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He said, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. 
He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Indiscriminately, God sends blessings, sunlight, rain, other such things. But see, his, when we talk about his love, his particular love, that is reserved only for those who are among his elect, whom, as Pastor Gabriel said last week, he has foreknown, he has predestined, and he has called. Again, let me turn to the scriptures so you don't think I'm just preaching some new heresy. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. It says, this is God speaking, as it is written... Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I, what is that word? Say it louder. What is that word? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, this may seem hard because it flies in the face of what we tell ourselves constantly. I'm God's special little angel. God's so crazy about me. But God holds our wickedness in utter contempt. We hold our nose when we hear anyone say that God could possibly hate anything or worse yet, anybody But we have to be guided only by the word of God and not by our own prejudiced, kind of self-formed theology. Amen? Psalms 11.15. Let's try this one on for size. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul... What's that word again? His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves Violence. Let's keep going. Hosea's prophecy is against the northern kingdom of Israel, who is referred to as Ephraim in the book. And Hosea says this in chapter 9, verse 15. Look at this. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Therefore, I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Did you notice something when we read from Proverbs chapter 6 earlier when seven things that God hates, that seven are abomination to him? Notice that he didn't in each of those list just the actions that he hates, but the ones performing those actions. He mentions a false witness. He says, I hate a false witness as opposed to the act of witnessing Falsely. He mentions that he hates the one who sows discord, not the act of sowing discord. The word of God is sometimes hard, isn't it? It really is. It's difficult. The other thing we have to do when we look at the love of God is we have to make a clear distinction between those who have been redeemed through repentance and faith, and those who have not been. And as Jim so eloquently pointed out, this is not in reference to the law, it's in reference to the Lord's sovereign choice. 
But if we're not believers, these reflections on God's love and His hate should give us pause before we confidently boast of how God loves us. Let me ask you a a self-reflective series of questions. Are you wicked? I know you're not right now. But where were you when no one was looking this week? Are you wicked? Are you violent? Do you love to assert your will and dominate people? Are you lovers of evil? Do you celebrate things that the Bible does not celebrate? Are you a proud liar thinking you're fooling everyone around you? Are you a divisive gossip? Let me tell you something because I love you. You are right now under the wrath of God. And you may think you're skating by, everything's going to be just fine and dandy. Someday you're going to have a head-on collision with the wrath of God. But if your heart, even just in this moment, if God has done me the grace of letting these words be in any way effective, if your heart is moved and you see the depths to which you've fallen and you say, I want to be loved by God. Right now, call out to Him. Cry out to Him. Ask Him, just ask Him to love you and to forgive you because Jesus said, everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks find and everyone who knocks on the door the door is open Jesus says that you know you can't do that you can't even ask with any sincerity or truth if God hasn't selected you to receive forgiveness and eternal life what am i saying if you have the impulse to cry out to God today for forgiveness for acceptance for love then that is a sign to you that God has accepted you and he's received you. And that's good news. Come running to him. Don't wait for tomorrow, what you're feeling right now. You won't feel tomorrow. You won't feel next week because in your, in your, in your ignoring what God is doing, your heart just becomes harder and harder and harder and harder. Jesus says that no one can come to him Unless the Father draws him. Is the Father drawing you to Jesus this morning? Respond. Respond. Don't wait. Jesus also says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. When God offers his love to us, that love is proven by us accepting when we call on, by him accepting us rather, when we call on him for salvation. So God's love serves for us as a foundation of our love to others. Therefore, John begins our text today with the encouragement to us as the church. Beloved, let us love one another. And he goes on to tell us the basis for this encouragement. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. What John's saying is that all love has its origin in God. 
Without God showing us what love is, we'd spend our days like brute animals, instinctively living for ourselves and whatever concerned only us, only our needs, only our desires, only our lusts. It's rare to find a species of animals. There's a few, but a species of animal that mates monogamously for life or that continues to care for its young after the point where they're weaned. But God's model for his image bearer was to be rooted not in survival alone, but in love. That one man and one woman would be joined together in love for life, raising their children with patience, love, wisdom, far beyond the time when the child can defend, can fend rather for themselves. But when sin entered the world, The safety of the loving family was perverted so that now people just pursue sex without love. And they freely abandon, if not murder, their children. Even when the family unit remains intact, children are often left to themselves without the benefit of a mother or a father or preferably both, discipling them wisely from the word of God. And John points out that true, unselfish, godlike love is the exception in our fallen world and not the rule. When we see love functioning as it should, it's a proof that the person has experienced the new birth. Why? Because we are showing forth, in our acts of loving, we're showing forth God's nature. This is what John means when he points out, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He states the same thing negatively. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. To love is to have experienced redemption by God and to be seen now as walking in vital relationship with the Almighty. John is referring to both the love that we express to God in thankfulness and that we express in sacrifice for one another. The Bible knows nothing at all about a love that doesn't manifest itself in both passionate love vertically to the God who redeemed us or horizontally to our fellow image bearers. Knows nothing about that. This is an absolutely major theme in the New Testament from cover to cover and even in the Old Testament. John 14, 15, Jesus said this. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love to our fellow humans is to be constant. It's to be sacrificial. It's to be genuine. First John 3, 6, the chapter before we began. John says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, listen carefully to this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, the reason for this is simple. God is love. Second Corinthians teaches us that the ongoing work of the, of the Spirit of God in us is to change us from one degree of glory to another until we are found bearing the image of Christ. And like Jesus did, we're commanded to show practical love even to our enemies. But how rare 
is this level of love? How rare is this in our world today? Think about how many complaints are leveled at Christ's church as she becomes more sectarian and more political and less loving. If you want to see a move of God in our midst, I am not a charismatic, I am not a revivalist, but if you want to see a move of God in our midst, then commit yourself to being a person of love. I don't mean a person who just loves in some sentimental, effeminate rom-com fashion. I don't mean that. But rather a person who loves with their life and with their blood, loving the world and the church until we take our final breath. When we say that God is love, what do we mean? What, do, what does that even mean? A.W. Pink, the theologian, lined out seven characteristics of the love of God. And as we've said all along, to understand the nature of the love of God, we just have, or any of the other attributes, we just have to simply look at the other attributes and see how they're connected. First, Pink says that the love of God is uninfluenced. There is nothing in the object of God's love that can make him love any of us. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in us that can make him love us more than he already does or to make him love us any less than perfectly. Isn't that a huge relief? If we were always trying to maintain or work the, the, the system of God's love, we would be, of all men and women, most miserable. It's not your great faith, it's not your good works, it's not even your sin that was paid for on the cross once and for all, nor your small faith that God makes God love you more or less. God gives his love freely out of his good pleasure. No one receives his love, earn, who receives his love earns it or deserves it at all. We take great comfort in that fact. I'm not earning anything. I certainly am not deserving anything, and yet it has been lavished upon me. Thank you, Jesus. God's love for us never grows or diminishes, but Hebrews says that in love, God disciplines all of us because he's unwilling to leave us in a polluted state. Why? Because he loves us. The Bible says the, the, the father disciplines the son whom he loves. Next, God's love is eternal. Ephesians says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world was laid. And then, so that speaks of what we call eternity past. But then in Jeremiah 31, 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's love will last untarnished through all the ages of eternity in heaven. God's love is also sovereign. As we have said, Romans 9, he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, compassion on whom he'll have compassion. His love can't be bargained for or demanded by the creature. God's love is infinite. It's bigger than you will ever know. I don't mean before you die. God's love is bigger than you will ever know. When you've been dead and in heaven a trillion, trillion years, you still will not grasp fully the magnitude of the love of God for you. It's bigger. 
He is loving you right now around the clock in ways that you will mostly remain completely unaware of. Everything he allows in your life is only because of his goodwill toward believers. And Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's love is immutable. Nothing can change his love for you. His love is holy. Only a holy God could redeem those who were once subversive to his will and forgive them and make them not only his willing servants, but his friends and his sons. He does this all without ever jeopardizing his glory. And lastly, the love of God is gracious. Pink says that Christ died not to make God love us, but because he did love his people. It wasn't the death of Christ that made God love you. It it was God's love for you that sent Christ to die for you. Uninfluenced, God eternally, sovereignly, infinitely, immutably, and in perfect holiness loves his people. There's only one necessary evidence for the perfect love of God towards his people. Verse 10 in our text today says, And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans says, no one seeks after God. So it's impossible to think of uh, uh, that any of us would have ever loved God by some perceived freedom in our own will. Or that we could have even had that capacity to love God if he had not loved us first. First, and Later on in the same chapter, John says that. He says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. My ability to love God springs from the root of his love for me. Charles Wesley's hymn shows the wonder of God's love revealed in Christ. Died for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isn't this the affirmation of Jesus to Nicodemus, John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's love. What could the could have compelled the spotless, undefiled, eternally existing son of God to become a man? to to render perfect obedience to God's law on our behalf, to suffer the full wrath of God on our behalf for all of our sinning. What could have compelled that if not for the perfect, eternal love of the triune God for us? What other explanation could there be? What, What did he possibly have to gain for all of his obedience and his suffering? Well, you don't have to doubt that because the Bible tells us. He was motivated by nothing more, nothing less than perfect love for his father. But that wasn't all he loved. He had perfect love for the promised inheritance of a people for himself. Love is at the pulsating center of every movement of redemption's story. We should meditate on this often. We should rejoice and glory in it like the Apostle John. He, he thought about it a lot 
If you look at John's writings, he refers to himself frequently as the beloved disciple. He says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Do you belong to Jesus by faith and repentance this morning? Do you? And then guess what? You're the disciple Jesus loves. You are the beloved disciple. So stop walking in shame and fear of rejection by him. He knows your weakness. He knows your stumbling. He knows your failures. And yet he has set his unchanging, everlasting love on you. What other effects should this truth produce in us? Well, verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God has forgiven us in Christ. We ought to forgive each other without delay, without holding grudges. God has accepted us in Christ, but despite our many frailties, despite our many weaknesses, we should accept our struggling brothers and sisters with patience and encouragement. In short, God has loved us regardless of how undeserving we were of such a bountiful gift. We should love each other as well. What possible excuse could we offer to our loving God for not doing so? What debt could your brother or sister owe to you that doesn't shrink down to a tiny microscopic size in light of what you owe God? What frustration could your brother or sister incite in you that is worse than what you could have caused God? looking at all your rebellion and your sin. And yet God forgives. He supports, he encourages, he blesses, he strengthens, and he endures with us with patience. What is your excuse? What's your excuse? None of us can proffer any such excuse that will be less than dishonoring to God. God looks at your life and he says, it is finished. You are forgiven. You are redeemed for all eternity. Now go and forgive others. And you say, well, you have no idea, God, what this guy did to me. Are you kidding me? You were leading a cosmic rebellion. You were a traitor against the Most High. And you can't forgive someone who maybe owes you a little bit of money or maybe insulted you or offended you. Get over yourself. Jesus has forgiven you. We ought to forgive as well. May God awaken us anew to his love for us. And, and may he discipline us and even break us until we become the loving, burden-bearing, image-makers that he died for us to be. Let us approach him in heartfelt repentance day after day. Now, John made one last somewhat cryptic argument in the final verse of our text. In verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God. Now, what on earth? does that have to do with love? He's echoing something he had already written in John chapter 1. When he says no one has ever seen God, in echoing the sentiment, his point is that God isn't observed. He isn't heard. He isn't felt through human senses in this life. How then will the world that's dying without God ever see, ever experience God? 
John gives us the answer. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. See, the world sees God only in the love we have for each other and for them. Jesus said, by this will the whole world know you're Christians when you have love one for another. He said nothing about your church. He said nothing about your giving. Nothing about your piety. He said it was your love one for another that demonstrates to the whole world that you're Christians. Failure to love is a dereliction of duty in our call to proclaim Christ to the world. What you say with your lips, with your mouth, is important. But it is absolutely meaningless without genuine love that backs up your preaching, that backs up your declarations, that backs up your testimony. Paul says without love, you are reduced to just being a noisy gong, to being a clanging cymbal. It's just chaos and noise, and there's way too much of it in the Christian world today. Amen? John says that love proves that God abides in us. Love distinguishes us from every other fallen creature in this world. It's the lack of love that demonstrates we're in reality just like every other lost soul on the planet. doesn't matter what prayer you prayed, what aisle you walked. If you do not have love, you are not one of his. But John also said that when we love, God's love is perfected in us. doesn't mean that our love becomes perfect. I love my wife more than anybody in this world, and my love for her is so imperfect. And I can only say that because she's not here to say amen. This doesn't mean that our love becomes perfect. It means that there is no better reality of the love of God for his people than when his people actually love. May God make it so with every one of us who truly belong to him. Would you stand with me? Father, as I pray to end this message, I have a praise and a plea. My my praise is this. Thank you for loving us. God, we are amazed, like John was in 1 John 3, that you have loved us. God, these people may not know who I am, but I know who I am. I know who I am in the shadows. I know the thoughts I wrestle with, the, the words that come out of my mouth. And yet you've loved me, God, and I, I have no words, but thank you. What gratitude that produces in my heart. And so thank you, God. That's my praise. My plea is this, God. Will you help me? Will you help my brothers and sisters gathered here today to really embrace what the Word of God says and make us to walk with a love that reflects the love that you have for us? God, we can't do it without you. We can't work it up. We can't white-knuckle it, God. We've got to have your help to be the kind of loving people to show Jesus to the world in any meaningful way. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves today in repentance and faith, and we ask you to do your divine work in our heart and make us, make us what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We can have our communion workers come and help us serve at the table. Um, what can I say about the table this morning after a message on the love of God is that uh, Jesus in his graciousness left us this symbol of his broken body and his spilled blood so that we would we would remember as often as we come to this table his gracious love for us. And so when you come today, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, come and receive these elements, not as a routine way that we end our services, but come with thankfulness in your heart, praise for the fact that Jesus loved you. And as we would say in our vernacular, he put his money where his mouth is by by, by placing his body on the cross for you. And so come with fresh thankfulness for the love of God. If you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ, please take heed to the call that I made to you to believe today. But if you have not yet done that, or if you need to talk and ask questions to myself or Gabriel, then we're here for you. But don't come to the table. This is something that biblically is reserved only for believers. And in fact, so so sacred it is that that the Bible says that those who eat and drink unworthily actually eat and drink condemnation, drink judgment on themselves. And so we do not want to place you in that, place your soul rather in that precarious position. So, um, please heed that warning and, and, um, but if you, if you're here, if you know the Lord Jesus, if you're one of His, been redeemed by Him, then come with gladness in your hearts, thanking Him for the love of God. Come receive these elements and in a moment we'll take them together after you return to your seats. Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's pause for a moment in giving thanks to the Lord for his bountiful gift. God, we thank you so much for the blessings of grace, the blessings of your foreknowledge, the blessings of your predestination, the blessing of your calling, the blessing of your justification and the blessing, God, of your glorification. We thank you, God, because we know, had you not set your love upon us, none of this would have been possible. It's not fruit that we could have produced on our own. We needed a Savior. We needed someone to, to take up our cause. And, Lord, you did that, and you did that out of unending, everlasting love. And so we thank you for that, God. God, help us uh, to be more thankful every day, not less, to be more loving every day, not less, God. And God, help us to to begin now with a new intensity to give you praise throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to announce this benediction over you. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.